and his men were in the cave. And they were running and they were hiding from Saul. And David, as I have some water, says that he is longing for a drink from the well. No, I'm good. No, I was just I was saying, I'm getting a drink of water. David, oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's okay. I appreciate that. And <laughs> I thought you said that too, Alicia. Alright, starting to take over. <laughs> no, David said he was longing for a drink from this well. And so two of his men actually went into behind enemy lines. That was the problem, is the well was behind enemy lines. They actually broke through, went to the well, got some water, brought it back to him in the cave, and it says that David poured it out as a drink offering to the Lord. If I was one of those two guys, I would be ticked. Like, I just risked my life to bring you water, which is what you said you wanted, and then you pour it out. But worship is never wasted. He was worshiping the Lord, um, using what was precious to him and to these guys, and giving it to the Lord, which is a really cool story. But that's what made me think of it when she said that. Um, okay, this week, we're going to be talking about advancing the gospel. Last week, um, we talked about how this is really one of the letters from lockdown. Uh, he wrote several letters when he was in jail, when he was in prison. This is one of them, one of the last letters that he wrote when he was uh, in house arrest in Rome. And as he is describing himself and Timothy, him and Timothy, um, he's introducing himself as slaves, as with the you know, Greek word doulos, willing slaves of Jesus Christ. Uh, those slaves are the ones that had served their time, and they would actually, they could go. They were free, but they chose to stay with their master because they liked him so much, and they wanted to work for his good. And then we talked about five things in particular that if we implement in our lives can help us recapture our joy when we go through difficult times. And you might say, Nathan, bring it on. Like, I've been going through some difficult times for a while now. So bring it on. Okay. Who watched season two finale of The Chosen? Did anybody watch season two? The rest of you are behind. You got to catch up. Uh, season two. And so after they get done with the episode, they have this little post show that they, they call the Come and See Show. Uh, if you've been going through that. And Dallas Jenkins, the, the creator of it, talks. And people get really upset because he won't be quiet. And actually, hashtag shut up Dallas because he just talks so long, but he's so passionate about what he's created. It's really good to listen to him. But in the post show, he was doing an interview with a pastor up in Montana by the name of Levi Lusco. And he's very well known. He's like everywhere right now. But uh, Alicia and I, he wrote a book uh, when his daughter passed. His daughter was like seven or eight. And she passed right before Christmas. Uh, she had an asthma attack and they couldn't get her to the doctors fast enough. And so after we went through our loss, we read the book, Through the Eyes of a Lion, I think is what it's called. And it was a really good book. Um, I like him a lot. But during the interview, he said something that kind of made me perk up. And he said, he was talking about going through difficult times. And he says, uh, he goes, I think C, uh, you know, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Spurgeon said that God often gives his toughest assignments to his strongest soldiers is what he said. And when he said that, I was like, what? I, I don't know if I agree with that. Like he gives his toughest assignments to his strongest soldiers. I, I can't imagine that Spurgeon said, I'm like, far be it for me to disagree with Charles Spurgeon, you know, on anything, uh, much less theology. And so I started looking it up. I'm like, you know, did he really say this? Um, and actually what I found, unfortunately, he didn't say that. Um, you find it on a lot of inspirational boards, quotes, sites, you know, and things like that. 
um, but they're attributed to other people. Um, because I said, you know, something like that may sound good to somebody who's going through a hard time. It may sound inspirational to say, well, you know, God gives his toughest battles to those who are the strongest soldiers. Um, but that sounds like it's based on merit. Like, because you have done so much, because you are so mature, I'm going to give you this hard battle. Here's what he actually said. He said, the Lord gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. That's what he said. Um, his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. Those people who choose to press in and walk through the affliction, who walk through hard times. A lot of people, when they go through hard times, they just want the, the hard time to stop. They just want the pain to stop. So they try to short circuit, shortcut um, the trial that they're going through. And then they don't learn. They don't get better through it. Oftentimes they get bitter through it. But when we walk through it, we stay close to God and we do, um, you know, press in into those highlands. Uh, he can make us better when we come out of there. And it's not because of what we have done. It's because of what he's done inside of us. Um, and I just I thought that was interesting uh, as we're going through difficult times. Um, I don't know if anybody else heard that, but it struck a chord in me. So I thought I would mention it. Um, God used some people in the Bible that were totally lame in some amazing ways. And it was all just to point out and point people to him, to his glory. And I think these elements of joy that Paul gives us can lead all of us, whether we're strong or whether we're weak, to be able to recapture our joy, to be able to rejoice if we're in Christ. Our eternal destination is secure. That's really what matters. That's what gives us our joy. And here were the elements that we talked about. Recollection, simply really just counting your blessings. It's that simple. Just remembering what God has done for you. Uh, second was intercession, to pray, pray to God, make your request known to God, but also pray for others, like get outside of yourself. It's awesome when we, you know, bring our request to God and he gives us a peace about those situations, but even more so we can have joy when we pray for other people and we see those things come to pass. So praying for others and then participation, partnering with others, linking arms with other believers, um, doing things, serving in, you know, in things that are bigger than yourself. Alicia and I watched a movie the other night. It's on Amazon. It's a Christian movie, and actually it was really good. Um, called The Same Kind of Different as Me. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, it basically is about a woman who gave her life, her you know, commitment was to serving homeless people, and her legacy lived on because she surrendered herself to a cause that was greater than her in serving. She got outside of herself, and she literally changed hundreds, thousands of lives. Through her testimony. The next one was anticipation. Not only has God worked in our life, you know, before, but he's also working in our life presently and into the future. We know that. So we have an anticipation of what God's doing and then affection. Jesus said, you will, they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. That's what he said. Um, Paul's telling these guys, look, I, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you guys so much. I'm so thankful that you have not forgotten about me, that you have partnered with me. And, uh, and I just, that gives me so much joy. And in that first section, we have this refrigerator verse, is what I call it, where he says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Um, who started it? God started it. And who's going to finish it? God's going to finish it. All we have to do is have faith and believe in what he's going to do. Um, I'm going to say this all through this book. If you change your mind, he will change your heart. Um, simply believe and have faith. That's all we have to do. And then later on in chapter uh, two, he'll say, 
work out your salvation with fear and trembling, uh, which is something that is confusing, right? Because it's not about work. So what does he mean by work out your salvation? And we'll talk about that here in a couple weeks. But basically put feet to your faith. You know, if you say you believe, put it in action, as James would say. And then we ended by talking about his encouragement to abound in all love, um, but not just abounding in love, but also in knowledge. Uh, and knowledge and knowledge of the scriptures and knowledge of him. And if we learn that, then we can apply it to our lives. We'll have discernment to take that knowledge and apply it. And then once we do that, once we have knowledge and discernment, we can improve what's blameless, what's pure and blameless, and then, or what's excellent. We can improve what's excellent, and then we'll be pure and blameless in the day of Jesus Christ. And I'm afraid that the American church is long on love, but short on knowledge. Um, we don't really know the scriptures very well. Alicia was listening to a podcast this week said that 17% of Christians are reading their Bibles on a regular basis. So statistically, I don't think that's true of this group, but statistically, that would mean like six or seven people in this group are reading their Bibles. But I know that's not true. <laughs> not of you guys. Um, and so we talked about how there's not a lot of discernment. So we end up approving things that are not excellent, lifestyles that are not excellent, um, are not pure. And so we need to get into our Bibles, which we'll do right now. We'll get into Philippians 1. We're going to do verses 12 through 18 today. Because I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. A sure sign of how mature we can be spiritually is how we react when things happen to us, when bad times happen to us. How can Paul remain joyful? How did he hold on to his joy when he's getting you know, the, the tar beat out of him, when he's being disparaged, when he's being talked bad about, when he's being thrown in jail? And really it's just because he was single-minded. He was in such fellowship with the Lord that it didn't matter what happened to him. It was all about advancing the cause of the gospel. So he says, I want you to know. He writes, I want you to know, brothers. So there might have been some confusion in the church. Like, what's going on? Uh, did Paul do something wrong? Like, why is he being put in prison? Uh, I mean, and you can see there's lots of people out preaching the gospel, even in Rome, and they're not in jail. Like, they're not in chains. So what's going on with Paul? He says, I want you to know, I'm going to make this clear for you guys, that God has a plan. We don't always see it. In fact, most of the time we don't see it uh, because we're too focused on our circumstances. Right? We're too focused on the thing that's happening right in front of us that we're not looking for God in the middle of it. We're too distracted. In 2 Kings 6, we read this amazing story about the prophet Elisha. And the king of Syria is warring with the Israelites. And so he sets up a couple ambushes. He sees that the Israelites are going a certain way. And so he sets up these ambushes. And God tells Elisha what's going on. And he sends word to the king and says, don't go that way. There's an ambush. You need to go another way. And so he would turn. And this happened several times. And the king of Syria just gets irate. He starts to freak out. And he's like, there must be a spy inside. What's going on? And his commanders actually say this. This is in verse 12. 
And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. And it was told, Behold, he is in Dothan. And so he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So he finds out where Elisha's living, and he surrounds the city. Now, it only says that it was Elisha's servant. It doesn't give us the name, but in the previous chapter, the servant was a guy named Gehazi. Gehazi. And he got in trouble because he disobeyed Elisha, and he took something that he wasn't supposed to take. He took payment for a miracle that God performed. And so he got struck with leprosy. And so I don't know if this is Gehazi and he got, you know, he was cursed, obviously, so they don't mention him. Or if, you know, he's no longer his servant, he's got a new one. But can you imagine this servant wakes up, rubs the sleep out of his eyes, pours some coffee and looks out the window. And there's just an army of men out there from the enemy. I mean, you would have thought this is it. We're dead. And so he talks to Elisha and Elisha says this. In verse 16, he said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So this is uh, where we get one of those. We hear this all the time. He who is with us is more than he that is against us. Right. And he says this in 17. Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened his eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. All his servant could see was the problem. That's all he was focused on. But Elisha was so single-minded, so focused on God, that he saw beyond that. And it's actually interesting because uh, he, had, he opened the servant's eyes, and then he blinded all the soldiers' eyes. So they couldn't see, and they got led off to the, uh, you know, the, to the opposing house, to the Israelites. And uh, they were going to kill him, and he said, you know, don't kill him, feed him, actually. You know, be nice to your enemies and send them home. And it says that from that point forward, they didn't invade Israel anymore, which is really cool. Um, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says this. He says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Um, the things that are unseen, we need to open our spiritual eyes. We need to be in tune to what God's doing so that we can know those who are with us are truly more than they're against us. That's what it's about. That's the reality. The central thing for Paul was that the gospel went forward. That was the main thing. It didn't matter. It didn't matter what's happening to me, where I'm located. The central thing is that God's uh, gospel is going far forth. Okay, verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul has joy here in what looked like a dire situation because humanly speaking, um, it looks pretty bad. I mean, it could be a death sentence for Paul, um, but it's actually causing the gospel to spread faster, which is amazing. The Romans could not stop Paul's ministry, even by chaining him to a guard and keeping him under house arrest. Um, his witness actually opened doors outside that house that nobody else could open. The Holy Spirit was opening doors through Paul that nobody else could open inside Caesar's household. He, he mentioned this imperial guard. They were known as the Praetorian Guard, and they were very prestigious. They were, um, these were the guys that were chained to him, and every six hours they would change the guard. 
And so Paul would say, great, a new captive audience, a new person for me to preach to, to witness to. And these guys were chained to him. And these were, um, I mean, the elite. They were established by Caesar Augustus, you know, uh, who decreed the census, right, when Jesus was born. And it was 10,000 soldiers, and they actually placed them throughout Rome strategically. And their job, not just to keep the peace, but to guard the emperor, that was their main goal. And they became so prestigious, so well-known, so high-profile that um, John MacArthur, I was doing some reading this week with him, he said they were actually known as king makers because not only did they protect the emperor, but they were so influential that they actually put in place some of the Caesars that were called. So these are the guys that are guarding Paul. And it's somewhat predictable, right? I mean, you chain a guy to Paul, the apostle Paul, for six hours a day, they don't have a chance. Like, they're going to get saved. And these influential soldiers, they watched Paul, and they started answering, they started asking questions. Right? Sometimes that's the best way to engage people when they ask the question, or if we just ask a question, better than telling, get people thinking about it. And these guys started watching Paul and thinking about it. We, took, we showed the video last week of Hunter. You know, Hunter just went for a jog. He just went running. And this guy who knew him flagged him down and started asking him questions. And he engaged him, and the gospel was advanced through this guy. And it looks like, I mean, he's reading the Bible. They're going to try to get him plugged in with the church, and the gospel you know, is going to be advanced through him. Um, was talking to Jason uh, Calder and his family are on a, on a trip right now. Um, but his daughter is running cross country and so they're getting ready for the fall and the teams are running. And he said they just happened to be running through a graveyard uh, where they were, you know, the path that they were running through. And she took that opportunity to ask a question to the other girls there. And she said, what do you think happens when you die as they're running through this graveyard? And it sparked this really interesting discussion about what these girls believed. Um, they really didn't believe anything. They really didn't even know. They started just spitting out some theories on what they thought. It caused them to think, just like these soldiers were doing as they're watching Paul. They had never seen a prisoner act this way. A lot of people would have considered it the end of the road. Um, but these guys started going back and telling people inside Caesar's household you're not going to believe what this guy's doing. They started preaching the gospel inside Caesar's household. Nobody would have been able to do that if he hadn't been in that situation. Uh, there was another man that was imprisoned for his preaching, for his faith in the 17th century. And his preaching was so popular, it was so powerful, but so unacceptable to the church leaders of that day in the Church of England that he got thrown into jail. They were trying to shut him up. But what happened was he started preaching in the courtyard at the jail. And so the prisoners all started coming out and listening to him and getting saved. And people from the surrounding villages started coming out and standing outside the walls and listening to this guy preach. It was so incredible. And so to try and shut him up even further, they put him in the dungeon, in an inner, inner jail, so that he couldn't get out and talk to people. But for some reason, they made the same mistake that these Praetorian guards made, and they gave him a pen and a piece of paper. And John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress sitting there in that inner prison. And so while he couldn't be out preaching powerfully, his, you know, his words through Pilgrim's Progress have ministered to millions of people around the world through the ages. His ministry went forth. The gospel was advanced, even though he was sitting in chains. At one point in time, it was the second most translated book in the world behind the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, you should read it. It's good. Um, 
they couldn't stop his ministry. Persecution has always served to further the, um, the gospel, always. In the face of persecution, the church spread. Because what happened is as they were persecuting Christians, they started to flee, they started to move, they started to go in different areas. And like wildfires springing up all over the place, um, then believers started, you know, churches and gatherings and people started getting saved. So it actually served to spread the gospel. And that's what Paul's saying here. Um, probably the most popular story in the Bible of things that looked pretty dire and turned out for good was Joseph, right? Joseph, we all know him. Uh, Jacob's youngest son, uh, the guy with the Technicolor dream coat. Um, he was hated by his brothers. His older brothers did not like him. And they were out in the field one day. I mean, he's having visions of his brothers and his parents bowing down to him. I mean, he wasn't really popular. And they see him coming out in the field one day, out in his dream coat, you know, his multicolored coat. And here was the thing about that. You know, David was out in the field watching sheep to the point where they didn't even bring him in. When they asked Jesse, go get all your boys and bring them here. He didn't even bring David. He was the youngest. He was out working. But here comes Joseph in his coat, and that coat actually represented authority. He wasn't doing work because he had the coat on, and his brothers hated him for that. And so they were going to kill him, right? You guys know the story. They sold him off to some slavers. He ends up in Egypt, um, becomes a slave in one of the leaders' house, gets accused of attacking, of, um, of you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, lying. They said that he was, you know, accosted her, his wife, gets thrown in prison for a couple years. Had to think, you know, what's going on? Here I am in jail. How is, you know, this benefiting anyone? And then, you know, God brings him out, puts him second in charge of the land. And then when his family gets down there, when the famine, he saves them and he saves everybody in the country. And he says this, this famous line to his brother, he says, you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And also to bring it about that many should be kept alive. And Paul could say the same thing. And we could say the same thing. What this thing is happening in my life, what you meant for evil, is actually serving to further the gospel and to serve people that they would be kept alive spiritually. Uh, we hear the verse, God causes all things to work together for good, right? For those who love him and for called, who are called according to his purpose. Um, and, you know, all things... All in the Greek means all. All of it. Everything turns out for good. Uh, theologians have debated for years whether or not, you know, does God make these things happen or does Satan make them happen and God just allows them? You know, they've debated that for years. And, you know, who does it? Beats me. I don't know. But what I do know is that God is going to cause all things to work for good. And that's what's happening as Paul sits locked up in Rome. And there's another result of his imprisonment. So not only are the guards getting saved and going into Caesar's house, but he says in verse 14, see if I can find it in my big Bible. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Not only are the guards watching, but the church is watching too. And they're watching to see what's Paul going to do in this situation. And their faith is growing in spite of persecution. Uh, when when we were on vacation, when we took our trip, uh, we went to a baseball game. Uh, we went to a minor league game. I love minor league games. I think they're a lot of fun. And uh, I think one of the best parts of baseball games, one of the best parts of the experience is at the beginning where they're singing the national anthem, right? And then they get done and the umpire yells, play ball. And everybody gets goosebumps. It's great. I love that part. 
And something happens during the Pledge of Allegiance, when we're singing the National Anthem, uh, that people rarely take notice of, and it's the color guard, right? The color guard marches out there with the flags, and we see the flags, but we don't give much thought to the people that are actually carrying the flags. And I was thinking about that, and throughout history, there have always been, in armies, there have always been flag bearers. There have always been standard bearers. Uh, these are the men who would carry the flags. And I always used to think, man, what a complete, completely unrewarding task to march into battle with the flag unarmed, just paint a big target on, on my back, and I'm carrying the flag into battle. I always thought that was a pretty bad job. But actually, it was actually um, a job of honor. It was a position of honor that was given to somebody, and they did it with a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, there's actually a story of a man from Kansas City. Uh, they actually named uh, one of the housing projects after him, after you know World War II. His name was um, Wayne Miner, and he was part of a group in World War II, and they needed to get to another place, and they needed an ammunition carrier. They needed somebody who couldn't be armed. He couldn't carry a rifle. He needed to carry ammunition, and nobody, they're like, we need somebody to do it, and nobody stepped forward. And so the captain said, well, if nobody's going to step forward, I'm going to have to choose somebody. And he stepped forward and said, I'll be the one that carries the ammunition for everybody else that's going to this other location. He ended up dying, but he ended up getting the Medal of Honor. And so it was considered a high honor. There's a story in the Civil War. Of, I thought this was amazing. The first Hispanic on, um, Medal of Honor winner, um, a guy by the name of Corporal Joseph DeCastro. And he was just an 18-year-old kid from Massachusetts that joined up in the army. And he was the first Hispanic Medal of Honor winner, and he was um, a flag bearer. That was his job, that was his position. And at the Battle of Gettysburg, one of the most influential battles at the turning point of the war at Gettysburg, the Union soldiers and the Confederate soldiers clash, and actually the flag bearers find themselves right across from one another. The flag bearers were actually in the fray. They were at the front. And there was a reason for that, but they found themselves across from each other, and they started duking it out with the flags, you know, with their sticks. And DeCastro knocks the guy down from the Confederate, and he grabs the flag, he grabs the Confederate flag, he hands his off to somebody else, and he runs the flag back to his captain, and hands it off, and then runs back to the front to grab his flag. And for that, and he survived the Battle of Gettysburg, which is incredible, and he got the Medal of Honor for that. Um, but the reason these guys were so important, even back in Roman times, um, is they used those flags as symbols, um, as directions, basically, for the soldiers. As long as they could look up and see the flag, they would know, this. are we advancing? Are we retreating? What are we doing? Which direction are we going? And so it was their job to communicate that to the soldiers. And this is, this is the point. This is what I'm getting at. Paul sitting in prison writing, his example, his witness, people getting saved, his ministry going forward, he is the flag bearer. People are looking at him. And as he is keeping the standard high, people are becoming more bold in their faith. Um, there's a great scene from uh, a movie, The Patriot, if you've ever seen that, The Patriot with Mel Gibson. And they're on the battlefield. This is back during the Revolutionary War. I promise I don't sit around and watch movies all the time. Um, I barely watched any in the last seven months. But uh, there's this scene where they're getting beat and they are retreating. Everybody's in full retreat. 
And because their flag bearer had gotten shot down, had fallen down, nobody could see the flag, people start to retreat, and this famous scene where Mel Gibson's character goes up and grabs the flag, and he starts running against everybody that's retreating. He gets to the top of the hill, and he starts waving the flag, and everybody yells, you know, advance, and everybody starts turning around and running back in the other direction. They start leading the charge, and so him as the leader leading the charge, they come back and they rally, and they have this huge victory. And here's Paul under arrest, chained to Roman guard, and the young church in Rome who's freaked out, their leader has gone down, their flag bearer has gone down. But as they watch him waving the flag, so to speak, they become emboldened, they become, um, you know, just more incredibly bold in their faith. They lose their fear. Um, you and I need to be flag bearers, standard bearers for our families and also for each other. I mean, not only were the Roman soldiers impressed, the church is watching and people are watching us. How are we going to react during this situation? What are we going to do in this circumstance? How are we going to react? Um, are people going to lose faith because of what we're doing, because we're retreating? Or are they going to become more bold in their faith because of the way that we're leading, because of our example? People will notice when we keep our joy, when we take those elements and apply them to our life and we rejoice that's going to make a difference because, here's the point, there are huddles in hell of demons trying to figure out how to take you out. That's the reality. The unseen is more real than what we see. In the spiritual realm, there are huddles of demons and they don't sleep and they're trying to figure out how to take you out, especially the guys, especially the men. Because if they can take us out, they can take out the family. And they could decrease, they could cause us to retreat instead of advance the gospel. And so that's why we need to be in the word. That's why we need to be linked with other believers. That's why we need to stay in the word, grow in knowledge and discernment. Amen? Okay, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter... Do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. Paul's ministry advanced in spite of trouble, and it also advanced in spite of detractors. Uh, here we have men inside the church, people that are believers, doing this for selfish reasons. They're trying to detract from Paul and use this opportunity to build up their ministry. That's their motivation. There's actually nothing wrong with their message, with their theology. I mean, if you think back to Galatians, Paul was very specific and very strong worded about these people that were coming in, trying to change them and give them a different gospel and saying, hey, you have to be circumcised if you want to be a real Christian. Paul had some serious words for them. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with their theology, but it's their motivation. Um, these men were jealous. They wanted to build their own ministries at his expense. Now, we don't know what they were saying. Maybe they were saying that Paul had some secret sin. You know, he was being punished for it. Um, or he lacked enough faith because he had been there for two years. Two years is a long time. And so maybe they were saying he just doesn't have enough faith. Or maybe there's something wrong that he's being punished for. We don't know. But Paul was defensive only about the gospel. He wasn't defensive about his own reputation. I think that's incredible because so many times we get immediately defensive about our reputations, what people say about us. We want to be right. We want to explain to people what's going on. But he wasn't concerned with that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1.12, he's speaking of divisions within the church. And he says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. 
or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Just like I said at the beginning of this, uh, we're to be servants of Jesus, not of a pastor, not of a church, not following a man. And then in, in Corinthians later on in chapter 3, he says, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future are all yours. And yours in Christ, and Christ is God's. There's not supposed to be any rivalry in the church. But that ain't the case, unfortunately, in our culture today. But there's not supposed to be any rivalry. The only purpose for the church is to know him and to make him known. To know Jesus and to make him known, to advance the gospel. I was um, actually spoke with a young couple that are in the Czech Republic right now. They're missionaries over there, and they have a very unique ministry, and they're doing a lot of good things. But in the, in the course of our conversation, he was telling me that one of the things they have to deal with is the churches over there, there's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of jealousy. There's a lot of envy. And they're, you know, picking these small points of theology and they're arguing back and forth and they're saying bad things about other churches. And so they're trying to work with the church leaders over there to iron some of this stuff out. But he says it's, you know, it's not good. And when people see that, they, you know, why would they come? Why would they walk through the doors when they see the church fighting and divisions? Um, Jesus said they will know that you're my disciples by your love for each other. Not for your love for them, which is true. We do need to love them, but your love for each other. Um, we live in a culture that glorifies superstars, uh, sports, movies, and unfortunately that mindset tends to creep into the church and we tend to elevate pastors and churches that you know are growing and have thousands of people attending every week. And that doesn't mean that they're bad churches, but it does mean that um, when we're more aligned with a parson than a person of Jesus, that we're off base. And so when we're listening to podcasts, or whether you're here, or whether you're in another church, wherever you are, just make that sure that your heart is centered on Jesus, that He is the center of everything that's going on. It's not just entertainment. Uh, Paul's grief, really, was that they were hurting the body of Christ. Um, I'm talking about a lot of movies today, but Alicia and I watched a movie this a couple years ago. Uh, it's on Amazon, and it's called Translated. Um, it's a movie about Paul. And it's not very good. <laughs> um, it's not very good. But it was interesting. The premise was good because it's about Paul and he's sitting in prison. He's awaiting his execution. But somehow he gets transported to modern day. It's a little bit hokey. But when he gets here, he says, you know, I got to talk to the church leaders. I want to meet with the church leaders. And they're kind of like, well, you know, I mean, there's churches everywhere. I don't know what to say. And he's like, well, we have to get them all together so I can talk to them. They said, well, you know, they don't all get along. They don't all believe the same thing. And. He said, we all need to get together and worship together and, you know, get into the word and the churches won't do it. And he just doesn't understand because there's all these divisions in the church in America today. And so while it wasn't a great movie, um, it actually had a really good message that's uh, actually been tried here. Um, you know, one of my former pastors tried to get all the pastors, in, you know, in liberty, at least, to get together on a regular basis and even maybe get our churches together once a year for a big worship event just to show the city, look, man, we are not divided. We all are praising Jesus. We all serve him. And they wouldn't do it. Maybe I'll take that up. Flag bearer, right? Take the flag. You guys heard me say it. <laughs> the sad thing for these preachers is that even in spite of all this work, they weren't going to get a reward for that because their heart wasn't right. They were doing it for jealous reasons. 
Um, and there wasn't going to be any reward for that type of labor. Of labor. Uh, we read in 1 Corinthians 3, or we did earlier, but if we back up a few verses, uh, we hear Paul say something that's been very sobering for me for a long time. And he says this in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, that only as through fire. There's an incredible uh, sermon on this that will rock your world by a guy named Paris Reedhead. And it's called Ten Shekels in a Shirt. And it will blow you away. And it's old. It's an old sermon. You can find it on YouTube and the audio is not great. But the Holy Spirit fell on this guy that day and he brought it. It was all about what are we building with? Uh, one day Jesus was talking to his disciples. He said, listen, you know the Pharisees, the guys that toot their horns to let everybody know in the marketplace that, hey, I'm giving out money. And they would stand on the street corner and pray really loud so that everybody would know how holy they are. Don't be like those guys because they're only doing it to be seen by men. And that is their reward. That's it. They'll get no reward in heaven for that because all they're looking for is the approval of men. You might say, well, Nathan, I don't do those things. Like Nobody stands on the street corner and prays so that everybody can hear them. But what about social media? Social media is the street corner and the marketplace of our day. And basically, when we take pictures and we post them on there, we want to show people, look what I'm doing today. And so we go out and we, you know, serve the homeless or we work in a soup kitchen or we do some type of ministry. We're picking up trash on the side of the street and we take a picture and say, look what I'm doing today. And that is, in my opinion, kind of the equivalent of standing on the corner and praying loudly so that everybody else can see. And, if, and really, it's, it's a matter of the heart. Okay, so I'm not bashing people that, that have done that, but you have to check your heart when you're doing those things. Are we advancing the gospel or are we advancing our reputation, our image, basically? Because if we're doing it just to impress people, then all the likes, all the you know thumbs up, all the comments, that's only going to be your reward. And it's tempting, I get it, because we're out doing things and we want to let people know, man, we're out doing those things too. Um, because from the outside, it appears like, you know, these people are <coughs> together, they're great humanitarians, whatever. Um, but we just need to make sure that we, that we check our heart because the only thing that's going to end up not being burnt up is going to be the things that we do for him with a pure heart. Um, you might even say, well, look at the situation. I mean, all of this stuff that we did, okay, I didn't have my heart wasn't right. But look at how fruitful it was, right? God used it. But you could go read the book of Jonah, for example. It's a short book. It's a real short read. But if you think about that, um, most of the time, we equate that with the big fish, right? The big fish that swallowed Jonah and spit him up on dry land. And we think about that's only one verse in the whole book uh, that I think is only like three chapters long. The reason for the story is that Jonah was running from God. God told him to go to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, and preach to those people, and he didn't want to go. And so he tries to outrun God, which was a bad strategy. <laughs> so that's how God got a hold of him. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyrians were a brutal, just nasty people. And I won't go into all the things that they did to, you know, the people that they conquered, but it's pretty vile. 
And not to be sensationalistic, but you know, I enjoy my skin on my body, basically, is what I'll say. And so if you read through some of the things that the Assyrians did to their victims, to the people they conquered, you would think that Jonah didn't want to go there because he was scared. I mean, I would be. I don't want to go there. If I start preaching there, I mean, I'm dead. That's what's going to happen to me, so I don't want to go. But that's not the reason why he didn't want to go. It tells us at the end of the book, he didn't want to go there because he didn't want it to be fruitful. He didn't like the Assyrians. He knew that God's grace and his faithfulness would win out, that the message would win out. That's the reason why he didn't want to go. He didn't like the Assyrians. He wanted them to experience God's wrath. But God gets him there. He gives him a ticket there. And he gives him a very simple message. Jonah does the bare minimum, by the way. He walks through this city, which is huge. It took three days to walk across this city. That's how big it was. And his message was 40 days and God's going to destroy this city. That was his only message. So he walked three days through the place, said, God's going to destroy this place in 40 days. You guys are evil. And the whole city repents. The whole city repents. And he was ticked. He was angry that God's faithfulness, that his word went forth and bore fruit. The prophet Isaiah writes this about God in Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word will not return void. It will succeed. Jonah's preaching led to the greatest revival in world history. Bigger than any Billy Graham crusade. I mean, an entire city got saved. But there's not going to be any reward in that for Jonah because he did not do it with the right heart. He did it spitefully. He didn't want to do it. And so because of his attitude and motives, there wouldn't be a reward for him. Um, and the book ends actually with a question. The book of Jonah ends with God asking him a question, which is really strange. But I think that's meant to, you know, to stimulate us to think about what that means uh, to our attitudes, our desires, our motivations. And when we get to heaven, all of our works are going to be placed before the Lord and tested to see what the motivation was and what will be left standing. And you might say, well, Nathan, I'm not really into rewards. I mean, you know, that kind of stuff. That doesn't bother me. But I'm telling you, when you get there, you will care. You will care when you get there. Um, but we can only build those. We can only get those on this side of eternity. Okay, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's goal, his motivation, was that Jesus was preached. He viewed himself as expendable. He's like, look, I'm expendable, okay? But the gospel is not expendable. The only thing that matters is that that goes forward. I mentioned that their theology was fine. It was just their motivation. And Paul says, whatever their motivation, God will take care of them. God can take care of their hearts. But as long as their preaching is right, as long as they're preaching Jesus, that's all I care about. And, you know, Paul was a very driven guy. I mean, I picture him as somebody who is, you know, always on the go. I mean, he told us, listen, I excelled beyond any of my companions. When it came to being religious, I was number one. And this guy who was number one at being religious had to be slowed down, had to be put in prison, 
to be productive, got to slow him down. Um, I'm the type of person I always like to, I don't rest very well, I like to be productive, I like to be going all the time, and so, you know, when I don't slow down, I'm not always as productive as I think I am. Sometimes I'm just busy but not productive. And he had to be slowed down. Uh, my dad taught a few weeks ago about what's in your hands. Um, just as God used a staff in Moses' hand, just like he used a pot in Gideon's hand or a sling in David's hand, he used chains on Paul's hands to slow him down and to give us these letters that are so packed with practical application to our lives, direction for how to live. That's why we have them. Um, to be motivated, we have to have a clear vision. We have to have a clear vision to be motivated. Uh, Paul's was his encounter with Jesus Christ along the road. That's what gave him his clear vision. Uh, he wanted the gospel to advance at any cost. One of the most successful and religious people of his day counted all of that, as he'll tell us in chapter 3, he counted all of that as dung, basically, is the nice word for it. Uh, some say loss. But basically, I count all that as rubbish compared to the, you know, knowing Jesus Christ and compared to what he's got for us in heaven. Everything I do here is loss. And I read this. A personal sense of purpose works in two ways. First, we work on it, and then it works on us. Once Paul had determined his life's mission, that purpose improved his attitude. His purpose improved his attitude. His attitude actually affected his altitude, if you want to say it that way. He was above all of the circumstances that are happening in his life. I mean, if you think about it, prisons, shipwrecks, beatings, through trials and debates, Paul kept on smiling because of his strong sense of purpose. He understood that leaders can either surrender to their circumstances or they can surrender to a cause that is so great that their circumstances don't matter. That's good. I'm going to say it again. He understood that leaders can either surrender to their circumstances or they can surrender to a cause that is so great that their circumstances don't matter. You somebody can go get the kids if you want to. When we surrender to our circumstances, we have good days and bad days, right? Our circumstances change, so we're up and down like a roller coaster. But when we're at the mercy of what happens to us through our circumstances, we surrender to those. But when we surrender to a cause or to a purpose, we have good days wherever we go. Because it doesn't matter anymore. The only thing that matters is Jesus is central, our eternal destination is secure, and we can have joy. And Paul's attitude helped his purpose go forward. And then his purpose helped his attitude go forward. And his attitude helped him conclude that it didn't matter what happened to him or others so long as the mission continued. And I was uh, reading this week and I read a story about Abraham Lincoln. And he used to go into a little church, not infrequently, and he would go after it had started. He would sneak in the back so he didn't cause a big stir that President Lincoln was in there. And he would sit down in the back row and set his stove pipe hat next to him. And he would listen. And one day, one of the pastor's assistants saw him sitting back there, and he rushed back at the end of the service to talk to him. And he said, President Lincoln, what did you think of the sermon today? And President Lincoln said, well, I thought it was very well thought out, and I thought it was eloquently delivered. And the assistant was like, great, so you thought it was a success? And he said, no, actually, I thought the sermon failed. He was like, what? It failed? You just said it was good. Why did it fail? 
He said, because he did not ask of us something great. He did not ask something of us great. And so what I would ask is that each of us consider one thing that we can do, that we can make a change in our lives. Could be just taking some of those business cards and handing them out to people that we feel need to hear the gospel message. But what thing can we do so that we can be standard bearers, that we can make people more bold in their faith to share, to get rid of the fear of peer pressure, and get out and share the gospel and make sure that goes forward? What things can we do um, and take personal responsibility for? That's what I would challenge, my challenge to you guys this week is to think about that, how you can implement these things into your lives so that we can be best soldiers that emerge from the highlands of adversity with joy, just like Spurgeon was saying. Amen.